the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Lots of exciting things going on in the arena of science. Most recently, of course, the the big announcement of the successful landing of Curiosity um, on the planet of Mars and the amazing photographs it has begun to send back. And no doubt this is going to do much in terms of adding to our understanding of planets and the cosmos and so forth. Uh, More recently, uh, interesting confirmation of a Peter Higgs so-called God particle He first came up with the concept back in 1964, and recently our friends up at Cal Berkeley have given some impetus to the idea that such a thing exists. So much going on in this arena, and as much as some Christians kind of shy away from the notion of science with the feeling that it kind of gets in the way of the truth of Scripture, my next guest, in fact, would suggest that there's much about science that confirms what we read in Scripture. Um, his CV, if I if I detail it all here, we wouldn't have enough time on the program. He has a PhD from the University of Toronto. He is the president and founder of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author of books such as The Fingerprint of God, The Genesis Question, The Creator, and The Cosmos. His newest book, an interesting title, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. While the oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. And Dr. Hugh Ross, I'd like to have you back on the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, Hugh, first, if we can, just kind of your, your thoughts on some of these uh, more recent news developments. Of course, your background as an astrophysicist, I would imagine you're, you've got uh, great interest in following what's been going on, for example, with the recent landing of that Mars rover uh, just last week. Yes, and uh, I've been in uh, print since 1988 and predicting that the remains of life will be found on all solar system bodies for the simple reason that Earth has been so prolific with life for such a long period of time uh, that meteors have struck the Earth in sufficient abundance as to transport Earth's soil to all solar system bodies. In fact, I got an opportunity to speak at NASA Houston a few years back where I said, we really need to target the moon as opposed to Mars, because on the surface of Mars, we only have about 200 pounds of Earth's soil for every 100 square kilometers, but on the moon, it's nearly 20,000 tons. And moreover, unlike Mars, the moon has had very little geological activity over its history. And when it comes to planet Earth, the fossils of Earth's first life have been destroyed by Earth's geology. We don't have those fossils. All we have is an isotope signature of Earth's first life. 
but we can literally go to the moon and recover the fossils of Earth's first life and establish who got it right on the origin of life, the Christians or the atheists. Amazing. So we, we, we find fur, further evidence of, of our own um, uh, lifespan here on Earth by going to other planets. Well, I mean, we can recover the fossils of Earth's first life by going to Mars, but uh, there's a good likelihood that they've been damaged beyond recognition. Uh, why I'm opting for the moon is that calculations already show us uh, that the fossils of Earth's first life arrived there uh, on low collision velocity uh, trajectories and therefore should be available in pristine form. And uh, the Christian model predicts that those fossils will be equally complex to the simplest life on planet Earth today. The atheists predict it would be orders of magnitude simpler. They also predict one species only, whereas the Christian model would predict that we should see a suite of species uh, with different uh, biochemical uh, metabolic uh, structures set up. We can literally go to the moon and prove who got it right. I mean, you can do the same thing on Mars, but frankly, I don't think instruments like Curiosity have the technical capability to really do the job. We'd have to send something much more sophisticated, whereas going to the moon, it'd be quite easy uh, to recover those fossils and bring them back to Earth for detailed analysis. And that analysis, then, as you're suggesting, Dr. Ross, has the capability, has the capacity of being able to differentiate between what they might would see as uh, particles that relate back to Earth as opposed to particles that are natural to the moon. Well, that's it. I mean, uh, you got many in NASA saying that life may have originated indigenously on Mars. If that's the case, we expect to see a different signature uh, in those uh, fossils and um, molecular structure than we see in Earth life. And so it's relatively routine uh, to see whether the creationists or the evolutionists uh, got the origin of life model right by literally going to places like Mars and the Moon. But I'm saying it'd be a lot easier to do on the Moon than to do on Mars. I make reference to uh, the recent conversations coming out of um, the University of California at Berkeley that uh, have kind of underscored some of the research that was done clear back in the early 1960s by Peter Higgs regarding the so-called God particle. Can you comment, uh, Dr. Ross, on the the recent uh, information coming out of UC Berkeley on the same? Yes, I think there's a good likelihood that the Higgs boson has been discovered. Uh, To really uh, fine-tune our particle creation models, however, we're going to need a fairly accurate measure of the mass of the Higgs boson. Uh, That still needs to happen. Uh, But the Large Hadron Collider has the capability of of actually doing that. Let's wait a few more years, and, and then I think we can actually look forward to something much more exciting uh, than the mere discovery. Uh, but if you go to our reasons.org website, I wrote a series of uh, five articles on our feature called Today's New Reason to Believe, and it's about a year ago, uh, where I talked about two other particles, axions and sterile neutrinos, that in my opinion deserve the title the God particles much more so than the Higgs boson. Uh, the discovery of those two particles, number one, can be done fairly cheaply. In fact, I suggest in the articles I wrote that astronomers probably have already discovered both particles. And with additional measurements, we could actually measure the characteristics 
of both sterile neutrinos and axions, and uh, that would really uh, bolster the Christian model for the creation of the universe and the creation of the particles. So I'm really anticipating uh, what astrophysics and particle physics in combination can really do uh, to build a much stronger case for a biblical creation model. If you've just joined our conversation, we're visiting today with well-known astrophysicist, Christian apologist, and of course the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross. Information, by the way, as he mentioned on the website at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Now, we're going to come back after a brief time out and talk about Dr. Ross's latest book. We typically turn to the book of Genesis for answers considering the origins of man and things of this sort. But how about the notion of turning to one of the oldest books in the Bible to find today's answers for scientific questions? We'll get to that part of our discussion. Best-selling author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, here on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, thank you, sir. We are back here, and we invite you to join us with thoughts and comments for astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, president and founder of Reasons to Believe. His new book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Now, I'm curious. We typically think of uh, Genesis as a great place to start in terms of finding answers related to uh, the origins of man, today's scientific questions, things of that sort. What led you, Dr. Ross, to begin exploring these questions and their ultimate answers inside the book of Job, a book that most of us, I think, generally just kind of regard as a book largely about suffering? Well, it is a book about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering, but of all the books of the Bible, it contains the most content about creation and science. And I think for good reason, because there's internal evidence in the book of Job that it's the first book that was given to humanity of all the Bible's books. I mean, you see references uh, in the book of Job to a patriarchal sacrificial system, which means it must have predated the time of Moses. It's also written as an easily memorized uh, poem, and therefore it indicates that it was probably uh, given to humanity before Hebrew became a written language. You also notice the text is devoid of any references to nations, uh, merely just uh, towns and city-states. So given that it is the first book uh, given to humanity of all the Bible's books, we shouldn't at all be surprised that it lays the foundation for creation. And the other thing that caught my attention it's just how much Moses leaves out about creation chronology uh, in Genesis uh, 1 through 11. And the stuff that he leaves out that's really crucial is material that's already described in the book of Job. So the fact that Moses uh, edited his material on creation and built on the foundation that's already in Job, I think again argues that we need to take a fresh look at the book of Job, not only as a book that deals with evil and suffering, uh, but also a book that lays the foundation uh, for creation theology. So the notion here, Doctor, if we take this all in proper and appropriate chronological order, while some might try to be dismissive 
in a way, of the Genesis account because of the so-called gaps that are in there. For example, the big time gap from uh, creation of the universe to formation of Earth. And folks will kind of say, well, because of all of that, we don't understand what was going on. That must have been left out because there was no answer. In reality, what you're suggesting is it would have been repetitive because a lot of the gaps and, and items, the key items within the timeline, actually appear in an earlier writing, the book of Job. Exactly. I mean, Job is the one that addresses what God was doing between creating the universe and forming the earth. So there's no need for Moses to cover that again. Walk us through some of the highlights, if you would. I don't want to give away the entire punchline of the book, but in terms of, of some of the highlights of the revelations that you found working through the pages of the book of Job in, some of, in terms of some of the, the key uh, mile markers, so to speak, in creation. Well, I think what really got my attention is how much of the creation content in the book of Job deals with the second origin of life. I mean, you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are three separate origins of life. Uh, creation day one is when God creates life that's physical, purely physical in its form. But in creation day five, God creates the soulish animals animals that are not only physical, but soulish, and that they manifest mind, will, and emotions, and are capable of forming relationships, not only with one another, but with a higher species, namely us human beings. And last of all, God creates the one and only species, human beings, the descendants of Adam and Eve, uh, that can relate to God himself. And it was Job that said in the 12th chapter, look to these soulish animals, look to the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and they will teach you lessons about yourself and lessons about God. And so as you get into, say, chapters 37, 38, 39, all the way to 42, uh, what you notice is a theme that as you examine these birds and mammals, you can see how strongly they are motivated to relate to human beings and serve and please human beings. Well, we're designed the same way. We're also designed and highly motivated to serve a higher being, namely God himself, uh, and to serve and to please him. Uh, And likewise, when we look at these birds and mammals, we can see the degree to which human sin and abuse has crippled the ability of these birds and mammals to relate to us and serve and please us. Instead of coming to us, often they run away in fear because they know what we're going to do to them. Well, likewise, the sin within us has damaged our ability to come to God and to serve and please Him. So in many respects, these birds and mammals are placed by God here in this planet, not only to further our well-being and launching and sustaining civilization and serving and pleasing us, but also teaching us critical spiritual lessons about ourselves, and about the problems we have in trying to relate to God. And the thing I've noticed as I've traveled around the world in my speaking ministry is you don't find atheists in the country. You find them in cities. And in cities, people are exposed to what man has created. But when you're out there in the countryside, you're exposed to what God has created. And therefore, I think that offers a good explanation why rural individuals Uh, believe in God, whereas many that live in cities, where they're cut off from contact with the birds and mammals, opt for agnosticism or atheism. I I frequently uh, 
pondered in places like the Yosemite Valley, for example, or or up in the beautiful mountains of Lake Tahoe, or other parts of, of the splendor of uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, how it is that someone can look at this and come to the conclusion that uh, it was the uh, the organization out of chaos resulting from the Big Bang uh, as a means of being dismissive of God's handiwork in all of this. Well, I've often taken scientists uh, out into the high Sierras, for example, get them out into a subalpine meadow, and just say, you know, what do you think of this place? And they just say, the beauty is awesome. I said, how do you explain that awesome beauty? And it's a wonderful opportunity to introduce them to the God that created it all. Whereas when you're stuck in some office in a big city, uh, often uh, people don't have that kind of response. We lean quite heavily, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Ross, on the Genesis account for... Uh, uh, how the world came to be, and certainly there there are lots of details in there. And yet, from what you're suggesting, as you work through the creation miracles um, in Job 38, 37, 39, it seems as if we could more accurately put, perhaps, that we get more details about man's fall in Genesis and more details about the creation of the universe, and specifically Earth, and the preparation of same to sustain life in the book of Job? Is that a fair uh, conclusion? It is. I, I think both points are valid. I mean, uh, for example, when you go through the creation days in Genesis 1, it implies that God created the sun before he went through his activity the six days. Um, you know, where, for example, it, it says in Genesis creation day 1, let there be light doesn't say that God created the light or made the light, uses the Hebrew verb hayah, let there be light. And in creation day four, the text says, let there be the great lights. Again, it doesn't say he created them or made them, let them be. And uh, what you notice on creation day four, this is the first time that the atmosphere goes from being permanently overcast to at least occasionally transparent. And uh, what does verse 15 say? It says, so that the creatures would now have signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Bacteria and insects don't need to have that information, but the higher animals do. But when you go to Job 38, verses 8 and 9, it makes it really explicit that it's dark on the surface of the waters in the context of the events before creation day one, not because there was no sun or stars, but because God had blanketed the seas of the earth with cloud layers that prevented the light that came through. Mm. Uh, Job 38, 9 and 10 makes the point, or February 8 and 9, uh, that God had blanketed the seas with clouds, and those blankets kept the seas dark. So where Genesis 1 implies that it's dark in the beginning because of the earth's cloud layer, uh, notice that Job 38 is explicit and identifying the clouds as the cause of the darkness rather than the lack of the light of the sun, moon, and stars. And so that allows you to look at Genesis 1 and say, okay, in the beginning, Earth had an opaque atmosphere. Creation day one, the atmosphere became translucent where light could pass through, but it's still overcast. And on creation day four, the atmosphere gets transformed again from being translucent to transparent. And that relieves Genesis 1 of the most major ridicule uh, of its accuracy 
uh, from scientific uh, skeptics. Part of the challenge here, perhaps, that we are trying to think of this in a very linear, a traditional linear fashion, uh, I would relate it to maybe in the assembly line uh, making automobiles, and that we would somehow believe that you have to begin most naturally and logically with the chassis, a frame, uh, the wheelbase, and then upon which you'll put the interior, you'll install the motor, you'll install the transmission. There, there's a very specific linear fashion in which all of this takes place to wind up with an automobile. It would be kind of foolhardy to suggest get the whole vehicle put together and then once having done so, install the interior. That would just seem to be contrary. Have we kind of tried to force God into a very linear fashion according to our own thinking? Well, the text does say that we are created in the image of God, so we shouldn't be surprised that the way we create and design things is similar to how God does. And, you know, God could do it all at once, or he could use a step-by-step method. And uh, Genesis 1, uh, by using the structure of the six creation days, tells us it's step-by-step. And likewise, Job 38 and 39 uh, establishes it step by step. And from a human perspective, we realize that's the most efficient way to create or design anything. And uh, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, God, being the kind of God, perfect God that he is, uh, uses the most efficient process available uh, to create and design. Uh, but one of the things I think we need to appreciate is that the Bible is a collection of 66 books not just one book, and that uh, if you go through the 66 books of the Bible, you find over two dozen chapter length or longer uh, texts that deal with creation. And therefore, what we uh, searchers of truth need to do is actually examine all the creation texts in the Bible and interpret them as consistently and literally as possible. But I would argue a great place to begin is the book of Job, and then build in Genesis 1 through 11, as well as uh, Proverbs 8, uh, Psalm 104, uh, Psalm 147 and 148, uh, the creation chapters in Isaiah, uh, and then go on into the texts in Romans and Revelation. And if you go on our website at reasons.org, we actually list every major creation text in the Bible. And we do that to encourage people to integrate consistently across all of God's revelation. If you've just joined our conversation today, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross with a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. He, of course, is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. His latest book called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Uh, The oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. When we come back, uh, we'll talk a bit more about the creation miracles of Job 37, 38, and 39, and look, too, at the ten animals of Job. I'm Craig Roberts. Our conversation with astrophysicist and best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking this evening with best-selling author and astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, How the Oldest Book in the Bible Answers Today's Scientific Questions. Dr. Ross, typically we see, in addition to uh, some of the naysayers that will look at the gaps in time in the Genesis account and say, here, there you go, because it's not all explained, therefore it can't be true. There are also some of the naysayers that will look at so-called 
bad designs in nature, maybe better put uh, faulty or what we would consider to be useless, like, for example, what exactly does the appendix do? Uh, And we'll look at this and say that this is a reason to believe that the because it's not a perfect design, therefore it can't be God's design. What do you say to that? Well, you know, these uh, so-called cripple designs are a great way to test our different creation evolution beliefs. I mean, uh, you know, maybe we haven't looked hard enough for the purpose or the design of, say, the appendix. When I was a child, uh, medical scientists felt that the appendix was completely useless, and so if you ever had abdominal surgery, they would routinely remove the appendix because of their belief that it was a holdover from an evolutionary accident. Today we know that the appendix plays no role in human digestion, but it plays a critical role in the immune response system. So today medical doctors do not remove the appendix unless it's inflamed. And likewise useless organs uh, such as the adenoids and tonsils were once thought to play no, no purpose or role in the human body. And uh, now we recognize that they, too, play a role in the human immune response system. So sometimes the design is in a different area than what we would never normally anticipate. And so here's the way you can put it to the test. Okay, if God's responsible for this, then we would expect that everything within the human body or everything within the cell uh, would have some purpose or function. And maybe we don't know what it is right now, but let's uh, continue to search. And if we find increasing evidence for design and function as we learn more and more uh, about uh, different organisms' morphology and uh, their biomolecular structure, then that would be evidence that God was responsible for that. But if we find as we learn more and more, and we're finding more and more junk and more and more crippled designs, then that would be evidence that, uh, that, hey, it's some kind of natural evolutionary explanation. Now there's one important caveat. We would expect that there would be a small amount of um, uh, quote uh, useless function uh, in response to how long an organism has been on the face of the earth. Because after all the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that the entire creation is subject to the law of decay. And so that law of decay will bring about some crippling of the divine designs. But in the case of the human species, we've been here for such an incredibly brief period of time that we would expect very little accumulation of, quote, junk as a result of the second law of thermodynamics. So perhaps less emphasis on uh, the evolution of man and a little bit more patience and more focus on the evolution of our understanding is a better way to approach some of this. Well, we would expect that a lot of the desire would be hidden from view because we haven't looked. That's the principle you see in both Job and the creation texts and Psalms, namely that the more we examine the record of nature, the more we'll discover the handiwork of God. And so medical science is a great example of how that has exactly played out. Part of this uh, discovery process, you spend some time, uh, some fair amount of time inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. To the lessons of the animals, the so-called ten animals of Job, uh, in our time that remains a doctor, spend a moment and kind of shed some light on that for us. Well, that's something that aroused my curiosity when I first began to examine the Book of Job is why do we see this list of 10 specific bird and mammal species in Job 38 and 39? You know, it's kind of like a top 10 list. 
And so as I began to study the animals that are mentioned in the text, I realized every one of them played a crucial role in launching human civilization. And that uh, those people groups that lacked access to those animals were never able to get themselves out of the Stone Age culture. Uh, but those cultural groups that had access to those animals were not only able to launch civilization, but to advance it significantly. And I think in the 21st century, we often think, hey, we did it all. But the truth is, we would have gotten nowhere if God hadn't given us these specific bird and animal species, and if we uh, hadn't really taken the time to tame them and begin to, to use them, uh, not only to launch our civilization, but also gain some measure of peace and enjoyment from our relationships with them. And I think what's really phenomenal, too, is if you look at creatures... Uh, you know, like the ostrich, uh, or the goat, uh, or the donkey, or the horse. Uh, what we're realizing is they not only fulfilled a critical role in launching human civilization, they are fulfilling a completely different role in assisting humanity towards the end of civilization when we have global high-tech uh, technology. Uh, so goats, for example, are serving a very different purpose today than they did at the beginning of civilization. And the fact that these creatures have multiple uh, ways of serving and pleasing humanity uh, to deal with humanity in different cultural contexts, that is, to me, a clear piece of evidence for the fingerprint of God in designing these creatures for our specific benefit. Final word, you spent some time on a key point. We began our conversation with curiosity on the topic of why pick the book of Job, since it uh, in large part is regarded as many as almost singularly a book about suffering, to be sure that it is. But at the end, you also make an interesting conclusion inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the book of Job, and that is how the book overall points to man's greatest need. Elaborate on that point. Well, uh, what God does is he talks about these animals that he gave to serve and please us and makes the point that we humans have been able to tame every one of them, and he mentions the Leviathan and the Behemoth as the two most difficult to tame of all the bird and mammal species and higher reptiles that God gave us. But he says there's one species you're not able to tame, and that is a proud human heart. And God steps in and says, only I can bring humility to a proud human being. You can't do it. And makes the point that we all struggle with pride, and without God's help, we're not going to overcome that pride. And just like these animals need to come to us, we need to go to God and get the humility we need in order to form a relationship with Him and successful relationships with one another. So what I love about the book of Job, the last few chapters close with a clear gospel message of how we can develop a successful relationship with our Creator. And if you look at Job's comments, he actually lays out from the evidence of nature all the critical points uh, for salvation, concluding in verse nine, in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him on the last day uh, with my own eyes and my own flesh. Why? Because Job recognized his need for a Savior and a Redeemer, and it committed his life to that uh, divine Redeemer. Speaking is deeper toward the answers that we seek in the creation of man, 
A look at today's scientific questions answered inside the book of Job, the new book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, newly published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the entire Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. At a boss years ago, when I was just a young buck, a lot of years ago, <laughs> who said to me when he was going to be out of town and uh, leaving me in charge, he said, now, Craig, if something comes up, if there's some sort of an emergency or a problem or an issue that develops, I would rather you do something to address it, even if that something is wrong, than rather do nothing at all. Pretty solid advice, I think, and I've carried that with me all these years. I think that that same viewpoint perhaps might be apropos to the tens of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians who every year continue to struggle with the big question. Meaning, what exactly does God have in store for me? What is his plan for my life. We know that God has a plan. A lot of folks feel as if he's not been willing to share that plan. And so as a result, we kind of sit back idly, quietly, doing absolutely nothing, waiting for, I don't know, sky riding in the sky, the thunderous voice of God to awaken us one night, something of a significant sign. And I have to wonder if maybe the advice that was given to me by my boss many, many years ago might be the same advice that God might offer anyone who is struggling to try and identify their calling, what God's will is for their life, that he would rather you do something than absolutely nothing. Joining me now is Johnny Moore. He is chief of staff to Mark Burnett, Roma Downey. Of course, Mark is creator of a number of um, award-winning Series You'll recognize Survivor, Amazing Race, the Bible miniseries, the movie, The Son of God. He spent many years serving as both campus pastor and senior vice president of Liberty University. He's made a big change, and he's detailing not just his own personal experience, but helps to answer this big question of what it is that I'm supposed to do with my life. We welcome Johnny Moore to the conversation. Johnny, great to have you with us today. Thanks, Craig. Good to be with you. This is um, this is a question I think that all of us struggle with, certainly as believers. Sometimes we, we struggle with it at multiple times and occasions in our life as the circumstances around us change. This notion of trying to ascertain what exactly is that God wants me to do with my life. I think it's encouraging to see so many Christians that want to be sensitive to the Lord's will, but frustrating that so many will waste sometimes weeks, months, years, a lifetime, never really quite feeling as if they've gotten an answer to that question. Yeah, and I think the word you just used there is the key word. They're expecting to feel like they have an answer to this question. And you know, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life, is because you know, I, I think we spend way too much time feeling and not enough time doing. And you know, this question of God's will is a lot easier than we make it when we actually look at what Scripture says about it. Let's spend some time talking about this. Um, again, there's this notion, and you talk about it in the book, and we've got a couple of choices here. Uh, we can either wait until God gets us started, or we can go until he stops us. So one thing for sure I find out, certainly this has been true in my own life experience, that if I'm heading down the wrong road, the Lord will surely close a door. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote this book in part because I spent a dozen years at Liberty University with, with you know, 
thousands of college students that I was trying to influence and trying to lead them and teach them and get them prepared for life. And my door in my office as campus pastor and senior vice president of Liberty was just rolling with students that were that were struggling with this question. And to a student, nearly every single one would say, you know, I just wish God would show me what to do with my life. God, just show me what I'm supposed to do. And and they were waiting on the sidelines of life for God to just send them the blinking sign from the sky, for God to fire the gun in the air and say, go. And you know, what, one of the points I make, make in my book, what am I supposed to do with my life, is that God's will is more about going until he stops you, not waiting for him to tell you to go. And you know, and people push back on that and say, you know, well, that's not that's not where the Bible teaches. But but actually, it's all over the Bible. And the quintessential example is the Apostle Paul. You know, you don't see Paul praying, asking God whether he should go to Athens or uh, or you know Philippi. He just goes. He goes to the places where the people were, and then occasionally God stops him along the road of life. And so I think far too many Christians are sort of waiting on the sidelines of life for God to tell them to go and. They really need to start going and expect God to not open doors as much as shut them. Is there a big practical side to all of this? And and, and maybe you can answer this question in relationship to um, your own life experience. You, you've made a major career shift from having spent time within academia, counseling, pastoral responsibilities there on campus at Liberty, your, your service as a senior VP of Liberty University, now working in Hollywood and in, in film production with, with some remarkably talented individuals, but many might argue that these are kind of, you know, opposite ends of sort of the, uh, the um, life skills, life work continuum. I, I would wonder from your own experience, if you had an inkling 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that God would have you where you are at today, if God had laid out this very perfect roadmap at the very beginning and saying, Johnny, at some point you will be here, are there a lot of people for whom that would so frighten them to death that they would run in the opposite direction? Well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't have believed God if he would have told me that I, I would have ended up here doing what I'm doing. But, but isn't that what's interesting? I mean, God works in these strange and mysterious ways. And, you know, the, the first point I make in the book, which I think is the, the biblical principle when it comes to the will of God, is that God's will is more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing. Mm. It's more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing. You know, this phrase, God's will, that we use all the time, right? I mean, it's one of the most frequently used phrases in Christianity, yet it's not used as frequently in the Bible. It's only used a few times, and its primary usage in the New Testament is when Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, this is God's will, that you be sanctified. He didn't say, this is God's will, that you live in this place or that you do this thing. I think God's will, biblically speaking, is more about your character. It's more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing. And so, you know, I, I, and so here I am, you know, some, some people think, did Johnny leave ministry, right? Because he was a pastor, and now he's working in Hollywood and, and you know, film and television. And, and actually, it's quite quite the contrary. I mean, you know, it, it, you know God led me to work with, with Mark Burnett and Roma Downey, and they're producing unbelievable things. I mean, this Easter Sunday on NBC, you know, a full television series called A.D. will be debuting, and it's the, uh, the story of the birth of the church in the book of Acts. Right? And, and so, you know, somehow God was preparing me for something I didn't know. And then he just sort of interrupted me on the road of life, and he led me a direction, and he didn't stop me. And here I am. 
You know, uh, you make an excellent point, I think, because so often, particularly in terms of of the context in which we try to sort of box in God and the definition of what it means to be uh, called or to be actively engaged in some sort of a ministerial vocation or or ascertaining God's will for your life, there tends to be, I think, sometimes the misperception that a call always comes with a title, that God is preparing me, God's will is that I be a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary. But I think as you're suggesting, Johnny, um, your role in fulfilling God's will for your life doesn't always come with a title, does it? Uh, no, it doesn't. And, you know, in fact, you know, the famous missionary in Scripture is the Apostle Paul, but he wasn't actually a missionary in the way that we think of missionary today. He was a tent maker. You know, he didn't, he didn't live on the support of churches, you know, to, to preach the gospel and give his, give his ministry around the world. He actually had a job. He made sense as he traveled around the Roman Empire in the, in the, in the Jewish world at the time, you know, preaching the gospel as he went. And so, you know, in fact, there's this, this really, really interesting moment where, you know, God's doing remarkable, remarkable things. Thousands of people are coming to Christ, and everybody wants to stop what they're doing. They want to leave their jobs, and they want to become preachers like the Apostle Paul. And what Paul says to them, he writes to the church at, at Corinth, he says, no, no, don't do that. Stay in your job, because that's where God's put you. He's put you to be a light in that place. And so, you know, I, I think we really, really get in trouble when we think that, you know, in order to honor God or to do ministry or to preach the gospel or these very spiritual things, you've got to be like a pastor or a missionary. And actually, you know, if you study why the church grew as quickly as it did in the first century, you know, one of the reasons why it grew so quickly is because there were Christians everywhere doing everything. They had totally were every part of society. They were just they were just living and working normal everyday lives, but they were the lights of the world, making the world a better place as they, they went along. And so I, I think this this question of God's will, it's a little, little messy when we think that if we're going to honor God, then we have to do these very ministerial things. But actually, a lot of times what God wants to, to do is not sort of leave the secular world, so to speak, but, but to be light and salt within it. That might be the call. Well, and you make an excellent point in terms of looking at the life of Paul um, or, or so many figures that we see throughout particularly New Testament Scripture that it, it was less so about them knowing going into all of this what it was that God was going to raise them up to do and rather more about them just going and doing. There was less focus on uh, trying to understand that, you know, Paul, I'm someday going to become the principal writer of the New Testament. No, that, <laughs> that wasn't part of the game for him at all. It was about who he was in his relationship with Christ and simply moving forward. And, and maybe therein lies the key for a lot of us, understanding that God's will is, is not about what you do as much as it is about who you are. Many of those lessons inside the pages of the book we're discussing today with Johnny Moore, it's called, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified. We'll take a brief time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation with Johnny tonight. And as we do so, answer the ageless question, is this about an event or is it more about process? That is this edition of Lifeline continues.